We turn to God's Word, as found in the Old Testament, Psalm 30. This will be our Old Covenant reading, Psalm 30, as it sets the backdrop for our text this morning, which is from Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. So if you wish to put a finger in your Bible to Romans 5, 1 through 2, that's our next place after we read from Psalm 30. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. May we be most attentive to it. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And then from there, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Thus far, the reading of his word to us this morning. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the proclamation of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we, we gather together to hear Christ preached and to partake of his body and blood. We not only hear the words that speak to the covenant of grace, but we truly feed upon it. We truly are nourished by that which represents Christ and his benefits, confirms our interest in him, makes us as a very holy and separate people, and engages us to that glorious service unto God through Christ. We hear God's word, and we eat and drink together, not just as individuals, but also as one body. 
And so this morning we gather united in God to enjoy that sweet communion that comes from His Son who has reconciled us to the Father and the Father to us. And how can we do that? Because of what the Apostle Paul says here in our text. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so, friends, we come to the table as a changed people, and our text depicts the agent of change as well as the means. So keep those two words in mind, the agent of our change as well as the means. Colossians 1 tells us the Lord's Supper is more than a remembrance. It's about reconciliation. It's about reconciliation. And Paul writes this, it is the preeminent Lord Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by whom all things were made, from whom we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, are now reconciled in his body of flesh and by his death. So yes, the table is more than a mere commemoration. It is that, though. But it is truly a celebration of our reconciliation with God. It is a celebration. And this past week, I thought about that as I was preparing to come to his table. What is this celebration? How meaningful is it that we come to celebrate together. And it's very meaningful because it is about our reconciliation. It is a glorious reminder that we are not left to ourselves in our own sin and misery. That we are no longer an estranged people with no hope, no comfort, and no peace. We, the prodigals, have come home because the Heavenly Father ordained far more than some fattened calf to be sacrificed. He had his very son chosen to be that atoning sacrifice to remove the chasm that kept him, the father, and his children separate. A holy and just God cannot commune with that which is unholy and blemished. And so our text says, but it is through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It is not through our partnership with him that we have access. It is not through our accepting him or our receiving him by our personal coming forward that we are approved by the Father, like we take that first step, we, we make that decision. It's not about that at all. Beloved, we can scrub and scrub and scrub, and we would never remove the filth that has so corrupted our entire bodies. We can never reach a level above reproach if it were not for Christ, for what he had done in the flesh and by his death in his person 
and in his work. He was the spotless lamb who took away our filth. And we know this doctrinally, but sometimes in our individual living out the faith, we fall into the mindset of trying to impress God to keep us in our grip. We do that often. We know, okay, he saved us, but will he hold on to us? So what must I do to convince God to hold on to me, to keep me in his grip? And if that's your premise, you have no confidence. Because nothing that we can do will convince God to hold on to us apart from Christ. Because of him only, we can now come to the table to admit our need and desire for the Deliverer, for our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it's truly about. We come to this table because we are weak people. And we need the strength that comes from this means of grace. We could never bring our own righteousness or our own stuff outside of Christ as if we had something to offer regarding our justification. What would you add to your justification, beloved? What could you? We brought sin, we brought corruption into this world, seen and unseen. The Apostle Paul notes in Romans 8, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, because of God's or Christ's incarnation and atoning death, God's righteousness is satisfied. Or as Romans 3 states, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So it is from this satisfaction of God's wrath, or what we call propitiation. Propitiation is just satisfying his wrath. Jesus took the wrath upon himself. And then the removal of sin and guilt, which we call expiation. It's removed, expiated, removed away. We have peace. We have peace with God. We have fellowship with God. Beloved, we are restored. And thus also the eventual glorification of the created order is restored. So this table also reminds us of the new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Now, beloved, it is not only by the visible are coming together and worshiping and fellowshipping with one another that comes when the old has passed away, but far more, far more that which is inside. How can we genuinely confess Christ without a true heart for that confession? Have you tested your confession lately? When you say you believe God, what does that really mean to you? When you say you trust God, what does that truly mean to you? Christ did not merely whitewash a rotting fence. We are not a cake 
unturned, as Hosea 7, 8 puts it, looking good on the outside, but not baked within. Before we could confess our sins and our desperate need for deliver, we had to have a changed heart. It's not that we were doing evil deeds, but we also had hostile minds. We were hostile toward the Creator, toward God Himself, the creature, hostile to Him who created us. Colossians 1.13 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are not talking about being externally and forcibly holed up somewhere and then physically brought out into the sun, where it says we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. It is, to be, it is because we can simply talk some good confession, that we have the speech down but not have the heart that should accompany such speech, if the speech is sincere. No, our Lord says in Luke 6.45, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, provides or produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The mouth always gives away the heart. There are those who think, well, I can talk the good spiritual talk, and they might be able to deceive others in doing that. But as the Apostle John said in his first epistle, those people will be found out, and they too will just walk away, because they will get tired of that act. But if they don't, if they continue to, to be like that, then on the day of their last breath, the Lord will say, I never knew you. Because while you did speak the good speak, the good speech here, you did not offer me your heart. God only brings that change of heart, and he does so through the Son and by the application of the Holy Spirit. And it is from this transformation comes forth two things, genuine peace and genuine hope, real peace and real hope. The table tells us that we have peace with God. Real peace. Not some fabricated peace that might come from an accord between two nations and that peace is, is somewhat, you know, contingent upon how one country behaves. No. This is everlasting peace. And it's a peace that originates from God. And it's a peace that is secure. And our partaking of the bread and of the wine is a reminder that that which has been given to you shall never be taken away. I don't call you my children and then say, well, I've changed my mind. Or I call you as my children and to stay as my children, you better have everything right. It's contingent upon what you do. If you are called by God, you are always his, you are always in his grip. And this peace is established through Christ. And from this peace, we have access to the Heavenly Father. It's an amazing thing when we pray. We pray to the Father. Now, of course, Christ mediates our prayers. He perfects our words. 
So he intercedes on our behalf, as does a spirit who knows a little bit about how to groan, because the spirit knows our frailty. But we are in the presence of a holy God because we have been made holy through the Son. So it's an amazing thing this morning that we gather and God's presence is here. It is a peace that, that unifies us and makes us thankful for one and another. A, a, a common Pauline refrain of gratitude goes something like this. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. This is genuine love. This is genuine behavior. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Now, in that nugget of scripture, in that nugget alone, we can see also why we partake in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, or faith in him, and the love we, for the saints, have because of him, underscores that glorious reconciliation. And we enjoy this in the household of God. So that's true, and it is. Why do we have so much quibbling in the church? Why do we have consternation and fighting? Why do we have problems? We think if any place should be a house of reconciliation, it ought to be the church. But we sin. Pastors sin. Elders sin. Deacons sin. Congregates sin. And in our sin, sometimes we, we get so ensnared by what we have said and done, and we fail to pursue the greater goal. And that is reconciliation. As God the Father has forgiven us, we ought to forgive one another. We ought to not have any grudge. We ought not to qualify our, our apologies. You know how that goes, right? Well, if I offended you, I'm sorry if I offended you. Really? Is that what the Lord wants us to say? Does that please Him? You've already qualified your apology. It's no apology at all. It's as if to say, well, because you are so thin-skinned, I'll apologize to you anyway. That's not an apology. But we're not a dysfunctional family. We are at one with him and with each other. And so we partake of the Lord's Supper to enjoy that, that unity we have with him, but also with each other because of the peace and the hope and that wonderful reconciliation we have with the Father. We partake because we have heard the word of truth, the gospel, and we want to grow in grace, bearing spiritual fruit individually and communally. We want to be filled with the knowledge of his will in our spiritual knowledge and in our spiritual understanding. And it is from this internal growth we then can respond externally, walking in a manner that is pleasing and worthy 
of the Lord, pleasing to Him and bearing fruit in every good work. That's what we can do because of Him. And also from this internal change, we participate in the Lord's Supper to proclaim the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. How tragic that, that many fellowships attempt to use the Lord's Supper to, to bring Christ off the throne and into the theater of death again and again and again. Quite the opposite. The Lord's Supper sets our minds to the things above, to Him who sits on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. And that's the point of Hebrews 8.1. We talked a little bit about this last time when we celebrated the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Yes, at one point, Christ was the sacrifice. That's what the Lord's Supper refers back to. However, it also points to one who is high priest, the one who intercedes on our behalf, the one who is our hope. We are spiritually lifted up to meet the hope, the hope that rests in him. He brings us near, nigh unto him. We don't partake of the bread and wine as if we must bring him off the throne of grace and in the throne of victory and, and crucify him all over again as if our grace was so dependent upon the efficacy of a man administering the elements or bringing Christ down to us. That's just plain heresy. I have no power, nor do I have a desire to even think about having Christ come down off his throne in order to make this supper meaningful. Paul speaks again of this hope, a hope that is persevering, a hope that is enduring, the hope that is anchored in the good news of the gospel. What if the gospel account were to end at the cross? What hope would we have? This is why Paul says elsewhere that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. And then we have this sort of difficult statement. The firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. He's not just the firstborn of creation, but the firstborn of the dead. You see, our Lord's resurrection marks the beginning of a new creation, marks the beginning of your new creation, each one of ours. He is the first to rise, and thus we have a new humanity founded in him as opposed to the old in Adam. Beloved, this is our blessed hope and is the hope that our text just exclaims, reveals, unfolds for our edification. Jesus' death and resurrection is both anticipation and a guarantee of the resurrection that we are reconciled unto God, will enjoy. Now, of course, that hope is the assurance of something not yet fully experienced, but it is nothing wishy-washy. It is nothing uncertain that leads to, well, 
I hope that hope is true. You often hear that? I just hope this hope is true. And that's the mantra of the doubting Christian. We hope that the hope is true. Know your hope in Christ. That's your hope. Your hope is in Christ, who is true. Listen to these tremendous words Paul lays out to the church at Corinth. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the hope of the table. And that's our boast. Don't boast in anything but in Christ. Paul did not want the Colossians to, to believe in any other but the preeminent Christ in, in the peace that comes from the cross. See, heresy had already found its way into the, the Colossian church, the church of Colossae. And, and these saints were, were being affected by this. And the heresy suggested that Christ's atoning work was, was good, it was good, but insufficient. And that righteous works as well as the mediatorial work of other celestial beings was necessary to secure salvation. Same issue with the Galatian church, with the churches of Galatia. As so many times before, after the doctrine of the deity of Christ was being challenged by false teachers who insisted that the recon reconciliation that comes from the gospel and also from the table, well, it's just not enough. It's not enough to secure your salvation. And this is where the devil loves to come in. Because if he can find any crevice in your faith, in your belief, that might suggest, I've got to do something. It's also contingent upon me to partner up with Christ. He's going to exasperate that. He's going to make that huge. And that's why many Christians, or professing so-called professing Christians, struggle here. The saints had to do more, presumably follow the legal ordinances, the food regulations, and so much other Jewish customs that we now count as baggage. And it's no different than today, that many churches are, are works-oriented, and we're called to do works, so no problem with that, but not as a, as a means toward your salvation, but as a reflection of that which has been done unto you, the good works that flow from us because we have been reconciled to the Heavenly Father. We can do nothing, beloved, outside of that reconciliation that the Father brought through the Son. And if we think we can, we have lost hope. We have gone astray. You cannot hope in yourself. 
You can't hope in your glorifying yourself and glorifying God and finding something you do. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. My gifts are, are phenomenal, and I rest in them. And there's no hope in that. You cannot hope in, in yourself or genuinely confess Christ outside of that blessed spiritual residence in you. And that's the Spirit. The Spirit taking residence in you who makes our Lord known to us, who makes God the Father known to us. He applies the Word, and it is from that Word we can partake from His table worthily because He was worthy. Now, none of this is new. You might, you might be thinking, you know, I've heard this so many times. Why am I hearing it again? Why did the Lord institute the Lord's Supper? A very simple, simple sacrament. And told us to do it again and again and again. Even though it doesn't change. Even though it repeats itself in, in that sense. In the observance. So we would be reminded so we be continually assured of his grace. You are mine, God says. And we can say, you, O Lord, are ours. You see, in the end, brothers and sisters, though we know we are the blessed recipients of this amazing grace, we still must contemplate of the huge cost which transformed us internally and externally. Yes, in some sense, we are a spiritual work in progress, but we have been justified by his body and blood, and there's no adding to that. We don't add to that justification. This is a table of victory. It is a table that puts the exclamation point on the phrase, it is finished. Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit, as John 19.30 says. Later, a few would bow their heads to the ground by the tomb. You know that narrative in Luke 24.5. Only to have the theophany say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that something? Why do you seek the living among the dead. Jesus had arisen and he would soon ascend. But so that we would not be left wandering around in our proverbial wilderness, in our proverbial desert, he gave us the word. He gave us his spirit. And he gave us a table that serves as that blessed hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.